Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the podcast series brought to you by Railway Age Railway Track and Structures and International Railway Journal. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief, William C. Vantuono. I have two special, very special guests uh, on this particular edition, uh, and we're going to talk about passenger trains on freight railroads, which was the uh, subject of a conference that we ran very successfully for many years. I have uh, Gene Skoropowski, who, uh, among many roles in this industry, was managing director of the Capital Corridor in uh, California, a very successful public-private partnership with the Union Pacific. And from the Union Pacific, uh, we have, as we used to say at our conferences, as partner in crime, Tom Mulligan, uh, who retired from the Union Pacific after 40 years, uh, and his most recent uh, assignment there was general director of passenger operations. And uh, the Gene and Tom show was uh, one of the best parts of our uh, uh, of passenger trains on freight railroads. And we have a lot to talk about today because uh, uh, things have come a long way uh, since these guys were uh, active full-time in this area. Uh, welcome, uh, both of you. So, uh, Gene, we'll start with you. What, uh, what, are you, what have you been doing since, um, uh, since you handed the reins over on, uh, on the Capitol Corridor? Well, uh, as you probably know, uh, I had re- I've retired about three times. Um, after my second retirement out at the Capitol Corridor, uh, I moved back to Florida and uh, I got a, uh, a call from a headhunter and uh, said, uh, hey, I got uh, this project and uh, we'd like to talk to you about it. So I said, well, where is the project? And they said, in Florida. I said, I don't know, I've been there twice now and uh, it wasn't working. Well, he said, this time it's different. It's a uh, private and uh, it was with uh, the Fortress uh, Investment Group in, uh, in New York that owned uh, the Florida East Coast Railway. And they wanted to build an intercity service between Miami and Orlando. And um, as it turned out, I was the, uh, the first hiree, if you will. Uh, I was, uh, I believe it was um, uh, vice president for uh, passenger rail development. And that was with uh, Florida East Coast Railway. The, uh, the all aboard Florida Brightline was not actually created as an entity uh, until September of 2012, um, and uh, that was under the umbrella of the Florida East Coast Industries. So from that point, uh, I worked with the the team uh, at uh, Florida East Coast Industries. We built a a complete railroad team, uh, and the service was designed and built in about a five-year period, and the first new private intercity passenger service uh, started operation in January of 2018. Um, The work is continuing on construction into Orlando. Uh, The Orlando airport station is actually fully built. I believe it is the uh, first new train shed built in the United States in probably a hundred years, maybe off a couple of decades. Uh, And um, that service is projected to start revenue operation at the end of uh, uh, 2022. So um, I haven't been laid back. I retired and I'm still doing some consulting work for other projects, uh, 
some in affiliation with T.Y. Lin, and some in affiliation with uh, EXP Engineering uh, out of uh, Chicago. Tom, uh, you've uh, spent 40 years as a, as a freight railroader, and then uh, you've done a, a number of things. And you went into politics for a while in, uh, in Omaha. Yes, uh, that was the reason I retired early from the Union Pacific. I got elected to the Omaha City Council. And uh, I served one term there. When I, when I left, I was the uh, president of the council. And uh, after that, uh, I too got contacted by a headhunter. And uh, I ended up being the uh, general manager of the commuter rail operations in Boston for Keolis Commuter Services. And uh, uh, I was there for a while and uh, came back to Omaha. And uh, I do uh, political consulting uh, part-time and I uh, just kind of try to stay plugged into the industry as much as I can. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting that you went to, uh, to run the passenger service in the very city where Gene is from and uh, the, the, the very types of uh, dealing with the service problems that got Gene involved in the passenger rail industry uh, to begin with. Right, Gene? Yeah, I was just a angry, fair-paying commuter. That uh, I'm an architect by background, and um, the work I had, my office was in downtown, uh, but had nothing to do with transportation. But the train was my mechanism for getting back and forth, and it was a pretty <clears throat> miserable experience and getting worse. So that's how I got involved. At my mother's encouragement, uh, my mother was active in uh, public school affairs to improve. Uh, conditions in the schools. And so she counseled me and said, a little uh, tired of hearing you complain about your train. If you want to change it, then you got to get involved. And so I became involved as an active citizen, drove the transit authority nuts. And uh, finally, they hired me to thinking they would shut me up and that didn't work. Um, <laughs> but uh, they bought the railroad and capital investment. And the head of the uh, rail operation at the time was a guy named David Gunn, who, as it turned out, was my next door neighbor and uh, ended up saying, OK, Mr. Loudmouth, it's put up or shut up time. We bought your broken down old railroad. We got a capital program and now I need all the help I can get to rebuild it. So that's how I got into the railroad business. And that all uh, led you to the capital quarter, which uh, uh, I've said many times uh, in, in railway age, but uh, also uh, in, in introducing uh, both of you at our conferences, uh, arguably the most successful public-private partnership between a class one railroad and a state uh, passenger rail agency. So why don't we just reminisce a little bit? What, what made that work and what were the most difficult obstacles to over, overcome? Tom, why don't we start with you uh, this time from the well, perspective uh, of Union Pacific? Yeah, um, the Capital Corridor, of course, came to the Union Pacific through our merger with the Southern Pacific. And um, I think at the beginning, uh, you know, the Union Pacific uh, really hadn't realized, you know, the magnitude of what was going on in California with passenger rail, and uh, particularly with the uh, Capital Corridor. Uh, that was a, a tri-party agreement. Uh, it was between the Southern, at the time it was signed, it was between the Southern Pacific 
Amtrak in the Capitol Corridor. And uh, of course, it uh, provided to stair step the service uh, up to increase the number of tra trains we were running. And uh, so it, uh, it was really kind of an educational learning curve that we went through. Uh, we, uh, we really didn't realize, um, you know, what exactly the Capitol Quarter was about, but we found out in a, in a big hurry. Uh, we, uh, we went through a couple of uh, directors uh, from the Capitol Quarter's perspective. And uh, finally, uh, Gene came on the scene. And uh, at that time, I, th I think uh, it, the Capitol Quarter got turned into uh, more of a partnership instead of a, a agency who just complained about the service. And, uh, you know, with Gene's help, uh, we really got that turned around uh, to a, a place where it was very successful for the agency, for the state, and for the Union Pacific. Well, Gene, that's, uh, you know, that's where you come in. And uh, I, re I remember well uh, talking about the, uh, as, as Tom said, the uh, stair step initiatives to, uh, to ramp up service that also involved putting a lot of, a lot of capital into, into the right of way that benefited both uh, uh, the passenger operations and the freight operations. Yeah, in my past experience, I realized that the key to a reliable uh, operation was having the right facilities in place in order to be able to run that service reliably. And in this particular case, um, it was a fairly heavy uh, freight corridor as well. Uh, there could be during the busy times as many as 30 uh, freight trains a day running on the line intermixed with about 44 passenger trains. Uh, and um, it took a while for me to first understand what was the most important factor at the Union Pacific. I'm going to say maybe it took me a year and a half. Uh, maybe I'm a slow learner. But the key was really the capital money to make the investments needed for implementation of the uh, frequency of service that the Capitol Corridor through the state of California had actually purchased um, during the uh, Southern Pacific days. Uh, the deal was that there were uh, 20 round trips purchased uh, on the line. Uh, I believe today there's 15 of them are allocated to the Capitol Corridor uh, for 15 round trips and uh, the other five are on the San Joaquin service because they share uh, some of the Union Pacific tracks between uh, Oakland and Martinez. Now, having said that, the next step was, how do you implement these improvements? Um, the state had a hellacious process of every project had to go through a, uh, an extended negotiation uh, on uh, the terms, the conditions, et cetera. So Union Pacific actually brought a fellow out um, to Northern California, a guy named Jerry Wilmoth, and Jerry was charged with negotiating the agreements with the Capitol Corridor. So Jerry and I sat down and over 18 months, which is what it took us with the attorneys, et cetera, to craft two master agreements. One was for uh, the feasibility engineering and design work. 
and the second one was for the construction and maintenance work. And what once these agreements were in place, each time we had a project, we just did a one-page amendment, and the one-page amendment specified the scope of the project, the cost of the project, the schedule for the project, what facilities would be built and maintained by Union Pacific and what the capital corridor got out of that service. In many cases, and Tom was a big part of uh, when these improvements were made, taking travel time out of the existing schedules at the time, um, the travel time between Oakland and Sacramento over that time period was reduced by 20 minutes. It was about a two hour and 20 minute run uh, scheduled initially and when I left, uh, and I believe it's still there, it's about an hour and 58 or 59 minutes. Um, that was a significant improvement. Uh, and Union Pacific began to realize with the capital cost and the supplemental uh, agreements that we had for the maintenance away crew, a dedicated maintenance away crew for the capital corridor route and the incentive payments for uh, on-time performance. Uh, this was a business deal that worked for the UP and clearly worked for the state. And as the state was taking delivery of additional rolling stock, you know, I was ready. I mean, we were adding trains, <laughs> round trip trains, like one every two months. Uh, we went from uh, the six round trips were in existence when I got there in 1999. And by 2006, we were up to 12. And then when we finished the uh, capital works, so a major capital work, uh, we were able to go to the 16 round trips plus up to seven round trips down to San Jose. And that was the single largest improvement that we had made. And the Union Pacific itself uh, realized they could run this. Um, a fellow by the name of Tom Jacoby came out uh, or was made the, uh, I think he was executive, uh, senior vice president for operations for Union Pacific based in Roseville. And he is the one because of his experience in Chicago with lots of passenger trains on freight railroad stuff, um, got it to work. And Tom was very instrumental in the, uh, the dispatch center, setting up the separate, di separate dispatch desks. And I'm not sure if he was involved in the putting up of the electronic boards that gave on each of the California corridors their on-time performance to date on the month. And that translated into what the earned incentive was, but uh, the dispatchers actually had these electronic boards right over their desks. So everybody knew exactly how those corridor services were performing. And since, since 2006, when all this stuff went into place, I believe Union Pacific has earned, if not all, but very close to 100% of its uh, potential incentives for running those trains on time. Um. We, uh, the Union Pacific, uh, was taking the incentives that we were earning for on-time performance, and we were putting that into our track maintenance program. So um, it, it really helped both the, the freight trains and the passenger trains to uh, keep that uh, corridor um, up to... Gosh, I don't know. I think it was class five FRA standards. Yeah, class five is um, right. Yeah, we could have been running the passenger trains like 90 miles an hour. Uh, so it was uh, it was really a win-win. And uh, it, 
it was it was a very unique uh, arrangement that uh, you know I, I think could be used in other places, uh, but it's uh, you know I I I guess it was just kind of like that the planets aligned you know for the UP and the Amtrak and for the Capital Corridor uh, to get the um, the capital corridor to what it is today. And, you know, we really haven't seen uh, anything like that now in, in, in recent years. So that's a real testament to uh, uh, cooperation. And uh, we haven't well, seen so much of that, that recently. Part of that, Bill, is that um, the difference in California was California recognized that they wanted to integrate an intercity rail program into the state's transportation network. And they provided the capital money to do it. There were no federal funds in this program. These were all the only two sources of revenue that I had in the capital corridor was either the allocations from the state for operating it for capital and passenger fares. That was it. And uh, when we added the services, the incremental cost of adding the additional frequency was actually outpaced by the growth in revenue that occurred from the passenger jump. When we went from six to seven round trips, the passenger volume went up 40% in one year. When the revenue went up, it changed the operating ratio. When I came in, uh, it was about 29% recovery of costs from fares. When I left, it was in the 55 to 60% range. And that is after all of the revenue that was generated to pay for the existing services. So it really was a, um, a win in terms of investment. In fairness to Amtrak, Amtrak has never had uh, the capital money that is needed to come to the railroad's table to say, okay, we wanna run this type of service on the railroad. And actually, I guess they have the right to run, but what are the facilities that are needed on that railroad in order to deliver a reliable service and protect the freight business as well? And that was the approach that we took. This new infrastructure bill should give Amtrak for the first time that kind of resource to be able to cut a reasonable business deal with the freight railroads that they want to put service on. And the Capital Corridor, as you point out, is probably a good model. May not be exactly the thing that's negotiated, but it's a good basic model that has proven that it works over time. Those agreements that were negotiated uh, for the uh, operation, the, the design, and for the uh, construction are 20 years old, and they still work. So you think Amtrak will will definitely have uh, have something extra to, to bring to the table, which maybe they really haven't had. Not that they haven't had, but they haven't had uh, that much of uh, historically. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's never been a capital stream of funding for Amtrak. What happens is each year they get enough money to keep the wheels rolling, um, maybe some for equipment overhauls, et cetera. But there's never been an, a, a a substantial level of capital flow like there is for highways or the airways or for the ports and waterways and for public transit. All the other modes have had some source of capital funds, but not for intercity city rail. And the uniqueness of California was 
California provided that for their program for intercity passenger rail. Yeah, I think uh, Amtrak's going to have some real tough decisions, regardless of how much money they get. But, you know, how they spend it, where they spend it. And, uh, you know, it's uh, if they decide to just use it all for operating expenses or infrastructure improvements. But um, I think to improve their relationship with the freight railroads, uh, they're really going to have to come to the table with some infrastructure improvements or some type of incentive for the railroads, uh, you, you know, to make it a successful operation. So uh, some type of a revenue stream, um, you know, from having to deal with passenger trains. Yeah, Paul, Tom mentioned the idea of, you know, where they're going to spend the money. Um, I'll give you an example of one of the things that Union Pacific implemented that really assisted us in determining where capital investments were made on Union Pacific. Um, the Capital Corridor and uh, Amtrak both had some external consultants uh, working on analysis uh, of what needed to be done to increase the frequency on the services. We took a look at them and some of them were fairly expensive endeavors, but uh, Tom Jacoby arranged this uh, uh, procedure whereby they would bring out dispatchers who worked in Omaha on the Capitol Corridor, but had never seen the Capitol Corridor, and put them on the trains and be able to run the trains. And we would sit down with these folks in a regular meeting. It was politely called the uh, Northern California Rail Policy Group. Um, those of us around the table always called it the no crap group because nobody held back. Uh, and the dispatchers in some cases, and I recall this one very, very clearly, uh, the dispatcher said, no, 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 you don't need to build that over there. All I need is a universal crossover here in Bahia, and we can clean up these delays immensely. And that's what we ended up doing, and it worked. The dispatchers who controlled those trains knew where the congestion points were, and they really were instrumental in helping us decide where those uh, capital improvements needed to be made. Yeah. You know, I just, uh, Gene, that, uh, that program, bringing the dispatchers out to uh, actually ride on the Capitol Quarter trains, gave them the opportunity to uh, meet the engineers, meet the conductors. Uh, they could see uh, what was going on as far as the magnitude of the passengers that we were you know, have, having board and, and uh, deboard the trains. And uh, yeah, I, I think uh, that just that in alone uh, was a big boost to the on-time performance. The other thing that uh, I'll mention is uh, the, uh, the head of maintenance on Union Pacific, a guy by the name of Dave Wickersham, uh, he decided, he invited me out to do a high rail trip with him on shortly after I got there. And the railroad was in class four condition, but I'll call it marginal class four condition. And uh, we took it, we could see that uh, when you approached the road crossings, you were getting the, you know, the big bump uh, because in doing maintenance, that's the last place you do the maintenance work because you got to rip apart the whole uh, crossing surface, et cetera. So I said to him, well, Dave, what's your recommendation on this? And he said, well, what I'd really like to do is maintain the railroad to class five conditions. He said, 
Class Y will give you uh, a reliable operation on the passenger service. And if there is a, uh, a slow order, it primarily would slow the freight trains down and not the passenger trains because class five would allow 90 mile an hour operation, but our maximum speed on the trains were actually 79. And with class five, the freight trains can run at 70. So the level of compatibility between the passenger trains and station stops and the freight trains was much better. And he said it would take him about three years to ramp up to get it to class five condition if he had the money to do it. And uh, it's actually less expensive to maintain in class five once it's there. So we went back to the drawing board. We came up with a plan. Uh, Dave needed about 600,000 bucks a year for dedicated maintenance away gang that would just do line and surface on the Capitol corridor. And uh, I came up with the money, 50,000 bucks a month. And uh, Dave put on the gang. They worked five days a week. When we first started, we were trying to do work during the day, and we were only getting about two or three hours of productive time. So uh, I said, well, what about working at night? And Dave said, well, the guys don't like to work tonight, but I'll talk to them. He went back and he said, for a buck more an hour, they'll work at night. So that's what they did. So they go out at 6.30 at night, and they work till like 3.30 in the morning, and the train's never were delayed because of the work and the quality of the ride, uh, the condition of the railroad was maintained. So um, there are ways to make it all work. And uh, Union Pacific on an annual basis did a series of tie and rail renewal programs, generally six to 10 mile segments on the railroad to rebuild it. And we told the railroad, we will work with you. We'll do special schedules put out notice to the passengers, do bus bridges where needed, because we, we conveyed that message of how important maintenance on the railroad was to the reliability of the services. And we never got a complaint from passengers during any of those construction projects. Gene, if I remember correctly, we replaced all those frogs on the entire route uh, which was a, a big uh, cause of the slow orders because we were out there welding on those frogs all the time. And uh, after uh, uh, having those all replaced, I mean, that, uh, that was a major cause of delay that disappeared. That is totally accurate. And there's a funny story behind it. Um, Dave uh, Mukashin was a big fan of these uh, frogs, these, uh, what do we call them? Uh, Movable point um, frog? Yes. Right. Movable point frog. Mm -hmm. Yeah, movable point frogs. And as a result, uh, it eliminated the welding. Most of the slow orders we got were, in fact, from worn frogs uh, that were below the FRA tolerance. And it took about four days for a welder to get out there. So you had a 10 mile an hour restriction. So Wickersham said, look, he said, I don't have the money to buy frogs. But if you can find the capital money to buy the the frog itself, uh, we'll put them in on an, as we do our regular maintenance, we'll change out the frogs. So for two years running, I got a, a million dollars each year from our state capital program. We bought the frogs. They went up to Roseville and the Roseville guys used to say, yeah, that's the frog pond over there uh, where all the frogs would be laid out. And as they did the work, they took the frogs out. When I left, there was about almost 60% of the frogs have been changed out. I believe 
they did the full 100%. And as a result, you don't have slow orders from uh, worn frogs out on the railroad. Again, another relatively innocuous thing, but it helped make that service reliable for both passenger and freight. Right. And as we all know, these incremental improvements, they add up to uh, over time to a tremendous uh, improvement in service, uh, uh, time savings, uh, all, all of that. It's not these huge a, projects necessarily. Yeah. It's the little ones that you string together. Yeah. I mean, yeah. each time one of these improvements came in, when you eliminate that frog delay stuff, you can take out travel time. In fact, Tom and I went out together and rode the trains and looked at how much time it took at a station stop to discharge and board passengers. We were allowing two minutes at every station stop. Well, we found out that 45 seconds, it was all done. So you take three minutes out from three different, one minute out from three different stations. And all of a sudden your travel time again is reduced and it doesn't have any impact in terms of the running schedule. It's just how long the train sits there waiting to move. So that procedure was put into place. Some stations, the big ones, we needed two minutes, but most of them, uh, you could do it with less than a minute. I want to talk a bit about the past uh, 10 years or so. Uh, a lot's changed for freight operations, uh, precision scheduled railroading, uh, a lot, lot of developments. Uh, have they, do you think they've complicated plans for passenger service improvements or expansions? You think they've, have they improved their denigrated service uh, quality? From my perspective, Bill, um, precision railroading is longer freight trains. And, uh, you know, the, it's just not conducive for helping run passenger trains. Uh, you know, if anything, from my perspective, it, it's making it worse. Uh, you know, there it's, it's, uh, it makes it, uh, more difficult to make meets with passenger trains because you've got, you know, longer, much, much longer freight trains. So um, I don't have the on-time figures in front of me as far as how the Union Pacific is doing overall today with their Amtrak service, but uh, I can't imagine, you know, going to the UP today and talking about new train service without uh, you know, having an appropriate amount of funding to do uh, improvements that would alleviate any delays to freight trains. Yeah, and in some cases now, when you're talking about uh, very long trains, you're not necessarily talking about siding extensions, you're talking about a full-blown double tracking project, and that's, uh, that can get expensive. Oh yes, very expensive. And, you know, in some very difficult areas, you know, um, I know when I left the UP, which was uh, 2010, uh, they had, to, you know, we were working on double tracking the uh, sunset route. And uh, to my knowledge, that still hasn't been completed. Uh, you know, so there's some, you know, there's some areas right there. Uh, and I know that's one of uh, Amtrak's favorite spots that they would like to increase services between Palm Springs and, and uh, LA. So it's, um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I just can't imagine that it's, 
it's going to be any easier and um, it's it would really take some um, improvements in the relationship just with the freight railroads with communications and you know just uh, dealing you know head on with some really difficult capacity situations gene what are you uh, what are you seeing well I'm I, I share Tom's view on that. Uh, I also like to maybe mention some things about, you know, hedge fund controls. Uh, hedge funds are primarily designed to make money. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but the approach that some of them take uh, are very different. Uh, some hedge funds go in and will uh, try to squeeze down everything uh, that costs in order to drive up uh, shareholder uh, distributions. Uh, quarterly dividends, et cetera, and, and ultimately leave the business uh, kind of a shell of, of what it was. Um, even some of this has a precision schedule railroading is doing that uh, to the major railroads, uh, leaving uh, lots of people unemployed, uh, leaving lots of equipment uh, un unutilized. Um, but there are other uh, hedge fund approaches that benefit the public. Um, I happen to have been affiliated with Fortress and I saw how when the uh, Montreal, Maine and Atlantic was had their disaster in Lake Mekantic and that railroad was ready to be abandoned, um, Fortress came in, uh, bought the railroad, basically rehabilitated it uh, and, and sold the railroad so they make money at what they do. But it, it left behind a, a valuable public asset for the uh, for the businesses and the shippers uh, across Maine and into uh, uh, Atlantic Canada, um, the approach that Fortress took, I think, with the Bright Line is very similar. Uh, the investments that were made on the railroad are directly related to the investments made uh, around the station development areas, which also Fortress controlled. So, it, the hedge funds can either decimate something and leave it a shell, or they can leave something that's very valuable to the public. Um, Fortress could step away from uh, whatever they have here in Florida and those investments, those improvements that have been made benefit to the public for decades. Um, you know, I, I just see uh, two different approaches to uh, some of these funds. Some are just totally financially driven. Others are financially driven, but they also benefit the overall public. Uh, so, Gene and Tom, I wanted to get uh, uh, get back to Amtrak and, and the state of affairs today, and they continue to push very hard on their 50-year-old enabling legislation, which gives Amtrak a statutory right of access to freight rail lines. Uh, we're seeing some examples of freight railroad pushback, you know, uh, this Gulf Coast service between um, New Orleans and Mobile, uh, the uh, the uh, it's gotten very contentious with the CSX and the Norfolk Southern. Are scenarios like this poisoning the well, uh, you know, destroying the spirit of cooperation necessary to achieve uh, a win-win, which, you know, again, the Capitol Corridor is, uh, is a prime example of that. Um, in contrast, though, there are agreements like the, uh, the arrangement that CSX has with the Commonwealth of Virginia that will see construction of dedicated tracks for uh, Virginia Railway Express and uh, 
Amtrak trains. So, you know, the regional disparities, what is it? Is it politics? Is it culture? Is it funding? Is it a lack of understanding? Or, or is it all of the above? Uh, Tom, uh, let, let's start with you. Recalling uh, my days at Union Pacific and the agreement that uh, Amtrak had with the UP, there's a provision in there for uh, additional service. And, uh, you know, basically you uh, conduct a, a capacity study and, uh, you know, determine, you know, what the impact is going to be on the railroad with the additional Amtrak service. And, uh, you know, the parties are supposed to meet meet an agreement on how that new service is supposed to take place. You know, unfortunately, there wasn't a really good uh, arbitrary process, you know, where the parties couldn't reach an agreement. And uh, that, that was kind of a, always a difficult position uh, for Amtrak to be in. Um, Number one, because you know they didn't have any money to bring to the table to alleviate uh, any of the improvements that the Union Pacific, you know, stated that they had to have to add the additional service. So I think maybe that's what the situation is uh, down there on the Gulf Coast with the Sunset service. Is um, you know, it's I'm sure that the freight roads are asking for. Uh, improvements to alleviate any delays uh, that would occur to uh, freight trains. And, uh, you know, you kind of reach a stalemate. And uh, I think they're going forward, you know, there's going to need to be an arbitrary process, you know, who who really decides uh, whether the improvements that the freight trains are asking for are necessary to uh, allow additional Amtrak service. There's a lot of um, contention there politically. You have so, you have some uh, legislators, whether they're you know mayors or governors, and they're 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 against the service, uh, particularly in Mobile. Uh, you have the opposite. <laughs> uh, of course, you're dealing with you're dealing with two states here. You're dealing with Louisiana and Alabama. You're not dealing with one state. Like like California, um, but uh, Gene, how how do you get around stuff like that? How do you bring these parties together with such disparate uh, opinions and and uh, well, uh, I mean, priorities? one way to stop a project is for both parties to have a uh, a position that is so far apart that they can't be resolved. In this particular case, uh, that that disparity is so large. Uh, I'm not sure that the parties amongst themselves can do it, um, but it might be the time where you bring in a, uh, uh, a third party arbiter, if you will, uh, to really do an evaluation on it. Um, the, the relationship, when you end up going to the STB, you're going to end up with a contentious relationship regardless of how the outcome works. I mean, it just... It's human nature. Um, in my dealings with the Union Pacific, uh, I did make the uh, uh, commitment to the Union Pacific that I would not air our differences out in the public. I would not go to the media. Uh, the state had in the past um, done that with uh, both SP and UP 
and the railroads despised that so that if you ended up coming to an agreement finally, there was still a bad taste. Uh, I would hope that with the capital funds that Amtrak would get out of the infrastructure bill, uh, that they would be able to come and sit down with CSX and come to an accommodation uh, on the level of investment and the frequency of services. Um, I think that Amtrak is in an incredibly good position to be a good negotiator uh, for the expansion of its network, uh, more frequency on existing routes and selected additional corridor routes uh, would make sense and they would be in a position to do that. But you wanna do it constructively because when you run your trains on a freight railroad, the freight railroad dispatches control those trains and you want it to be uh, a business deal that says that if those trains run on time, everybody's happy and there's money to be had. Uh, this has been, a, you know, like I say, an issue. Amtrak, for whatever uh, uh, warts people throw at it, if you will, uh, it has never had the resources to be able to cut those kinds of business deals. And there's a lot of uh, bad feelings out there, and that doesn't help anybody, really. Yeah, uh, I agree. yeah these guys need to listen to you two. I think they should bring you, both of you on as consultants for this project. If, I, if, if anybody can get it done, you, the two of you can. And I really mean that. I'm not kidding. I think you could do it without having uh, a, a great amount of pain, uh, if you will. Um, and I think, um, you know, the freight railroads and Amtrak both have to be very realistic, you know, of what, of what they're asking for and what the expectations are. The freight railroads like revenue. And if, if you can somehow reach an agreement where there's a revenue stream um, you know, to the freight railroads for operating the passenger trains, um, you know, I, I think that's what's gonna be the solution. Uh, you know, a, a part of it's gonna be uh, capital improvements to the infrastructure. But uh, if there could be a significant revenue stream, you know, for on-time performance, as well as just operating the trains, I mean, I, I think they could be able to reach a deal. I don't, I don't think it's, it's not rocket science. And, uh, you know, like Gene said, you know, bring some consultants on and you know, have, actually have them look at what, uh, you know, the operation, what delays or, you know, what complications or what difficulties, you know, the, the frames, the train, the additional passenger service would actually bring to a corridor. Gene, I seem to remember you using that phrase frequently in our, speaking at our conferences, it's not rocket science. And, and you're right. Yeah, it's about cutting the right business deal. One of the things that was included in all of the capital corridor capital improvements when we were doing the analysis was we built in at the cost of the capital corridors project a 7% growth potential for the freight business. And this was a benefit, a sweetener, if you will, uh, that gave the railroad something that just wasn't taking their existing operation 
and incrementally forcing the passenger piece on it. It was building what's needed for the passenger service to run reliably, plus adding a 7% growth potential for the freight business. And that was enough for the Union Pacific to say, this is a reasonable deal for us uh, and we will go ahead with the project and the additional passenger services that we were proposing. You know, we're seeing some uh, examples of uh, willingness to uh, to work on uh, adding and improving passenger service. The the Canadian Pacific, which uh, uh, it appears at this point that they will be the merger partner with the Kansas City Southern, uh, they've openly said we want to work with Amtrak. We we want to make new services possible. You know, we have uh, we have the best on time performance for Amtrak trains. Yeah, Canadian Pacific has a, an excellent track record uh, with performance of the Amtrak trains on their route. Um, and that has a lot to do with the railroad's um, viewpoint on whether or not additional services can be accommodated and what those facility needs are to accommodate the services. Um, the, the whole issue of uh, the Capital Corridor on Union Pacific it's because there was a right business deal. And this is what has to happen on any passenger services that are being proposed out there. Um, it also opens the door potentially for Amtrak to even partner uh, with private sector companies. Uh, let's say like, like Brightline would be in Florida, which is isolated right now, but to integrate it with the overall passenger network, not necessarily Amtrak operated, but the idea is that it's integrated with a national system for passengers to be able to make reservations and buy tickets to uh, whatever points are served by passenger trains. It's rhetoric, just like uh, you described there with the Canadian Pacific. I mean, that's what that's what needs to happen, uh, you know, with these other companies. And, you know, I'd, uh, I'd give the BNSF uh, credit, you know, with T.J. Mitchell and, and uh, Rich Wessler you know, what they've done uh, over the past 10, 15 years. And, uh, you know, they've had a very, very positive uh, relationship with Amtrak. And, uh, you, you know, I mean, it's, uh, that's really what it's about is, you know, you've got to have two willing partners uh, who uh, can accept, you know, uh, each other's position on what it's going to take to uh, add additional service and or just improve the service that they've got. The idea that it is between people that Tom has mentioned is really important. Um, I will tell you that in my first uh, meeting uh, in Omaha uh, with the chairman of the Capitol Corridor Board, we went to meet with uh, Dennis Duffy, who is executive vice president of UP, and at that time, this was very early, maybe around 2001, uh, Dennis made it very clear that Union Pacific saw no benefit to having uh, passenger trains on its railroad. The only reason they were doing this is because it was a legal obligation. Fast forward after the 10 years of the relationship between the two, Dennis Duffy at the last uh, ARIMA conference that was held here in Orlando, uh, when he, just before he retired, I believe it was in 2009, he publicly said that the best 
operating agreement that Union Pacific has with a passenger service is with the Capitol Corridor. And it was that time period that he actually saw the transformation or he went through a transformation of seeing how the business deal that was crafted was working to the railroad's benefit. And I think that that's possible in every railroad, but it does take a willingness uh, of the people in charge to be able to take a close look at what are the components that will make it work for their business. I think it was about five degrees below zero uh, when Gene came to Omaha for that first meeting. So <laughs> that was in the room, Tom. <laughs> Gene Skoropowski and uh, Tom Mulligan, I thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, it's been wonderful speaking with you both and sort of uh, reviving our, uh, uh, in some, some way, our passenger trains on freight railroads conference. Uh, maybe we ought to bring it back. You know, maybe the time is ripe to, uh, uh, to, to bring it back uh, because there are a lot of opportunities now, uh, new funding and. Uh, yeah. Know, what we changes. have to share is that experience and anything that we can do to help people achieve the same kind of cooperative agreements that's what we have to offer well it's certainly valuable to have you both uh, still involved uh, in, in the rail like the rail industry you know as they say uh, there's you never really the railroading gets into your blood you never really leave it and uh, uh, and there's no substitute for experience so uh, thank you both and uh, have a safe day.